Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With us today is Aisha Ahmed. She's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and the author of a new book, Jihad and Company, Black Markets and Islamist Power, published by Oxford University Press. Aisha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. So this book is a really fascinating read, um, going deep into Afghanistan and Somalia and trying to unpack the connections between uh, businessmen and Islamist groups. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book and what you think the major contributions are. Well, you know, this is a story that I've been living with for a very long time. In fact, uh, you know, my family are from the, the border region of, of Afghanistan in, on the Pakistani side in a town called Peshawar, uh, which is uh, a place that was, has been sort of the hotbed of, uh, you know, both militant and also business activity that fed into the war in Afghanistan that's now going on 37 years. And, uh, and so as a child, I bore witness to some of the market dynamics that I, you know, witnessed play out that shaped, you know, conflict dynamics on the ground. And, and so this is a story that I've lived with for a very long time. And what I think the main contribution of the book really is, is that, you know, these, these conflicts that take place in uh, jihadist uh, environments where there are militant Islamist groups that have risen to power, they look like they're primarily driven by ideology or identity politics. But the truth is that behind the scenes, in order for your movement to succeed, you need to have enough money to buy the bullets. You need to have enough money to feed your foot soldiers. And so there is a logic that's taking place behind the scenes that explains why these seemingly ideological movements rise to power. And that's not to say that I'm not saying ideology and identity don't matter. What I'm saying is that there are, in fact, market forces that explain why jihadists succeed in civil wars when so many other types of groups that look like they should have traction on the ground don't. And so here is the crux of the argument. The fact is that in a civil war, it looks like it's all chaos and poverty and destitution, and that's true. I've been to the refugee camps, you know, whether on Zadab on the Somali border, I was in Jalozai refugee camp, uh, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of Afghans were, you know, I was at the Syrian border. There is definitely poverty and destitution, but the truth is that there is also a tremendous amount of money that you can make in a conflict zone. And so in addition to there being a lot of poverty, there is wealth, there is opulence, and there are big business tycoons that make a killing off of the chaos. And I think that's a part of the story that is often overlooked in political science. Who are these guys? What are they doing? And why, most importantly, do they end up in bed with Islamists? I think that, last part, I think that last part is what's the most interesting, because I think the idea that there are war profiteers or there are smuggling routes to be captured... I think people intuitively get that. But then the idea that these, you know, these types of people would be particularly interested in working with Islamist group, that seems like a real leap. Well, it sounds like they're completely mismatched because you know, the business elite that are emerging out of civil wars, they're interested in profit. Their primary motivation is the here and now. And the dunya, for those who are, you know, people who study the Muslim world or Arabic, you know, like the material world, they're in it for the cash. And that is very different. Uh, type of motivation than the jihadists who are motivated by the life hereafter, by spiritual non-materialistic principles. So you imagine what causes a profit-driven business elite to get a, in bed, 
with an ideologically motivated Islamist. Uh, so while they're strange bedfellows, there is an economic logic behind their marriage. Uh, and that is that in a conflict zone, their business means that they have to move goods from point A to point B. And when there is a high level of fragmentation, like most conflict zones, you have Warlord A, Warlord B, Warlord C, each of whom are running their turf. And so if I'm from one ethnic group, and Mark, you're from a different ethnic group or a different tribe, you know, we're buying into protection rackets from our own ethnic and tribal leaders. And that means that if I try to sell goods into your turf, I need to make a deal with you, and then we end up paying double taxes. And so you have to buy into your protection racket, I have to buy into mine, and think about moving through three, four, five protection rackets. That's essentially a compound tax on your goods. And so then that can actually become very, very costly. And so this is where Islamists have a unique advantage that other types of, of insurgent groups that are defined by narrower identities don't. What they can do, Mark, is they can sell security. They can ask us to buy into their Islamist protection racket. So instead of me being from my ethnic group and you being from your ethnic group, we create a common language of Islamic identity and buy into an Islamist protection racket. And this is sort of like the big box chain that outcompetes the mom and pop shop. Uh, you know, by appealing to a wider base, Islamists are able to offer the business class better security at a lower price. So they're basically so, unifying and rationalizing the market. And in doing so, what we have is by being that big box chain, by monopolizing the security market, they monopolize use of force, which is our definition of the creation of statehood. And so why is it they're able to create order in places where so many other armed groups that have you know, foot soldiers and a long-term presence on the ground, it's because they can't monopolize. Whereas the Islamists have the ability to monopolize by reaching out across these lines and translating it into economic advantage. The business community buys into their model. They vote with their dollars. And by doing so, they materially outcompete those members of, uh, you know, those warlords that are representing ethnic or tribal factions that have a narrower identity. But it's a market logic rather than an economic logic. So it sounds like you're talking about a, a very specific type of business class because, you know, we might think of businessmen or the bourgeoisie in general as being quite conservative in the sense of maybe not wanting to invest in an insurgency. Um, but you're talking, it seems, more about these like smugglers, market seekers, a very distinctive type of economic class? Well, you know, people ask me all the time whether or not I'm talking about just criminal business networks or if it's a broader definition of business. And, you know, it's pretty rich of us to talk about illegality where there's no rule of law. And so, you know, the truth is I talk to business people across the spectrum. I talked to the smugglers who were, you know, moving illicit goods across borders, you know, whether it was arms or drugs. Uh, and I also talked to, you know, the head of the Coca-Cola company said it, that, you know, he couldn't move goods out of Mogadishu because the checkpoint prices on the road and the warlord taxation meant that that was added to the price of his goods. And no one was willing to spend five dollars for a bottle of Coke outside of Mogadishu. Right. So. Uh, so, in fact, when you have a collapse of law and order, then people are engaged in 
business activities across the spectrum. You know, so some of the f- folks who are, you know, selling flour or sugar one day, automobile parts, uh, they may also find that, you know, there's a good deal on arm supplies or, or ammunition, and they may also be involved in that kind of activity. You know, there are, there are individuals who sell both licit and counterfeit medications. And so I find that there's actually uh, a blurring of these lines of individuals who are engaged in both licit and illicit activities. Now, there are the drug bosses who essentially only trade in narcotics, and they make a killing doing so. But, you know, a lot of the times we see a gray zone of where people are involved in trade and smuggling. You know, sometimes they're evading customs duties. Other times they are uh, selling to inland markets, and there is no customs duty because the state has failed. And so uh, so these individuals are engaged in in whatever business is available to them at that point. I've taught, uh, you know, we've got arms traffickers who have explicitly said that, you know, if we could sell any other things, we would. But this is the, the good on the market that we're able to feed our families by selling. And so, you know, I really think that that when we look at these sorts of war economies, we need to have a holistic understanding of the kind of businesses that take place, which span both licit and illicit activities. So the the two primary case studies uh, in the book are the Afghanistan-Pakistan cluster and then Somalia. And it strikes me that both of them uh, have a couple of things in common. For one thing, there's already a civil war happening and the state has largely collapsed, at least in, in in the, uh, the primary cases. And then also you have a lot of these ethnic and tribal differences uh, that you describe that the Islamists are able to overcome. Are, are those necessary conditions for your argument to operate? Well, you know, the thing is that absolutely when Islamists show up on, on the scene in an environment in which there has been a high level of fragmentation, that gives them the opportunity to present a solution. Basically, you these know? are shattered so, states. There's no chaos and there's no division in society, then they were a harder sell, you know? Like, what's the, what, what, is, what are they needed for, you know? But what they offer across the spectrum is a remedy, a solution to what has been a failure of the state system in many parts of the world. So uh, these cases, Afghanistan and Somalia, are, are archetypal cases of, um, you know, high levels of fragmentation, failed international processes, repeated failed international processes, and an inability to create anything that looks like statehood, any sort of social trust that exists across local divisions. And and that's a problem that we've seen in many parts of the world, post-colonial states where you have uh, communities that don't have a sense of what it means to be from Mali. You don't have a sense of what it means to be, uh, you know, part of, of a, a state that was defined by colonial borders. And so local divisions become the primary identity that one has. And attempts to build a national identity and national trust don't quite do what the Islamists do. So what does it mean to be Afghan? Does that national trust, does that national identity foster a level of trust that exists across clan or, or, or ethnic lines? It doesn't nearly at the level that something that ha- like Islam does, where which has a great deal of social resonance, of, of social capital, in which we can build trust across these divisions. And so we see these groups emerging in places that are dysfunctional. We don't really see them taking root in parts of the world where we have healthy, 
uh, societies that uh, have a strong sense of a national identity and a lack of, of social violence. I mean, where jihadists do well is in the vacuum, in the political chaos of failed states. Now, what's interesting is that there's two ways to read your argument, uh, reading through the case studies. One is that this is all virtually inevitable, that you that the logic of this ability to unite and rationalize the market and provide these identity and trust uh, uh, supports basically makes it inevitable that the jihadists will win. But at other times, it sounds almost more like a tipping model, like it didn't have to be this way, but once it got going, it was impossible to stop. Which of those do you think is mostly right? I mean, do we are there certain things that basically predispose these kinds of failed states into jihadism, or is it more random or more kind of contingent than that? Well, you know, I hate the word impossibility because that strips us of all of our agency and ability to do something better in the next round. Um, But what I will say is that the Islamists have an advantage in these environments that the international community lacks. So, you know, how much effort has been built and put into Afghanistan to create some sense of a national identity? And they just don't have the same sort of social capital to, to lay the groundwork. Whereas, you know, the first part of my argument, uh, you know, in in the book actually doesn't even look at the specific market logic of why people buy into the business, uh, why the business community buys into jihadist groups, but rather looks at the long-term Islamicization of the business community itself, you know? And and let's imagine it, Mark, that, you know, you're from one group, I'm from another group, and we don't have any grounds to trust each other. We need some kind of common ground if we're going to do business. I need to know you're not going to run away with the loot. And, you know, saying that we're both Afghans isn't enough for, for me to believe that you're not going to run away with the loot. But if I believe that, you know, you're a pious person and that you're praying five times a day and that you, you know, have a fear of God in you, maybe I can get over my ethnic fear of your group and trust that, you know what, you're you're listening to a higher authority. So maybe, maybe I can believe that you're not going to run away with the loot. That in itself, if you think about the powerful social force that that uh, religion can play in parts of the world that are difficult to govern, I mean, that's really the crux of the problem, is that these are, uh, people have called them ungovernable spaces, but we can at least agree that they're incredibly difficult spaces to govern. And in places like that, Islam has a tremendous amount of uh, leverage. It's not only a mechanism for social trust, it comes with a set of rules and norms that we can both agree to abide by. That's governance in the absence of governance. And so when Islamists step into the mix, there's a cost calculation about the fact that they can reduce costs. And then there's also the social calculation, which you think, well, you know, this is a mechanism to overcome the trust deficit. Now, is it inevitable? I don't think so, because... You know, frankly, every single business elite that I have talked to is a pragmatist as opposed to, you know, an impassioned ideologue, even those who were heavily involved in this in financing Islamist groups. They were very much doing this for their interests. And so what that tells me is that, well, you know, let's look at the cost calculations that they're dealing with when it comes to the government side. And if you listen to them, they're talking about rampant corruption. They're talking about inability to access opportunities. You know, prices on the roads, both in terms of checkpoints, extortionary checkpoints by government allied militias, payments that they're making to warlords, prohibitive market environments. And so it's not inevitable just because Islam has this advantage, which it does, 
but also because, you know, frankly, the international community has done a great job of building corrupt governments that alienate a lot of these communities, these business elites that are trying to essentially prosper in, the, in, a, in a political vacuum. Now, there's another uh, part that works into the story with the, uh, the role of Islam, and that seems to be the ability of Islamic groups or Islamist actors to reach out into certain parts of the international community for support. So you, in, in your Somalia case study, you talk about how the Islamists are able to get support from, uh, from donors in the Gulf, which gives them kind of that initial, give them the money they need to get started. And of course, in the jihad in Afghanistan, you have uh, the Saudis and the Pakistanis playing a similar role. How important is that international dimension? Is that necessary or is that just something which helps give it a little bit of a nudge? Well, actually, I think that that international dimension is not causal uh, in the way that most of the literature would point us to. And those were two very different phenomena that happened. Uh, in the Somali case, it wasn't the Islamists that reached out to the Gulf for funding in, the, in that sense. It was actually the business community. The business community was the one that needed to build ties with Gulf states because Somalia, as being a, a country that's right up there on the, uh, the Gulf region, I mean, adjacent to Yemen, uh, has long-standing historic business ties to the Gulf. And then all of a sudden, the state collapses. And the business people who are trying to continue doing business with Gulf partners have no way of guaranteeing to their Gulf partners that, once again, that they're going to run off with the loot. And so the Somali business community actually adopted uh, an Islamic or even a Wahhabi identity in order to build trust with Gulf partners so that they could, you know, with a handshake, trust that, okay, we're going to keep doing business with you, even though there's no government to catch you if you run away with the money. So Islamic identity was cultivated in the Somali business class because of their ties to uh, the Gulf. And that built over many, many years. And so when the Islamists came to power in Somalia, they weren't tapping into the Gulf money directly. They were tapping into local business communities, which had ties to Gulf money through their you know, legitimate or illegitimate businesses. There's a whole range of them. And, uh, and so it was actually local resources that financed the rise of the Islamic courts in Somalia. And, you know, even in a case like Afghanistan with the rise of the Taliban, where most researchers will say that, you know what, the money came from Pakistan. The fact is, Pakistan has been in the game in Afghanistan for decades. And during the early rise of the Taliban, and I spoke to key leaders who were involved in the Taliban movement in, in the early 1990s, you know, Pakistan was in Hikmatyar's uh, game. They were backing Hikmatyar at that point, which was the uh, Hizbi Islami group, which they thought was a Pashtun Islamist militia, but that primarily was organized along ethnic lines and so therefore couldn't get buy-in across tribal and then ethnic divisions. And so Pakistan was throwing, you know, millions upon millions of dollars behind uh, Hikmatyar, like $150 million at one point. They threw behind Hikmatyar just to say, please take Kabul. And he failed to do so. And I spoke to leaders of the ISI about, you know, when they were in the Hikmatyar game and when they decide, actually started to notice the Taliban. And so while the Taliban were rising to power, they weren't doing so off of Pakistani money because Pakistanis were backing Hikmatyar at the time. And the Taliban were fighting against Hikmatyar. It was actually local business communities that were involved in cross-border trade, both, once again, legitimate and illegitimate types, uh, but local business people who were fed up with the uh, local warlords with Hikmatyar's people who were uh, you know, putting up checkpoints every five steps and who secretly at that moment decided to back 
the Taliban against Hikmatyar. And it was only after the Taliban routed Hikmatyar's forces from a key point called Spin Baldock in this big epic battle that I talk about in the book. Uh, it was only after that that the Pakistanis decided, you know what, maybe we're not going to throw out Hikmatyar just yet, but let's let's take a look at these new Taliban guys and see what we can do with them. And then you started to see Pakistan slowly buying into the Taliban game and then eventually back, uh, abandoning Hikmatyar. But it wasn't a story of external backing because if it was just about external for financing, Hikmatyar should have won the game. That should have been done a long time ago. And the same goes for other parts of the world where I've seen this phenomenon take place. You know, it is absolutely local money that creates a necessary social contract between the business class and this jihadist proto-state that creates this type of order. And we've seen, and even in the scholarly literature, you know, this social contract between the protection racket and the individual who buys into the protection racket is the making of this state. That can't be accomplished in. That social contract is essential to the order-making experience. Now, one issue that one issue that your book raises is that after the these jihadist groups have solved these problems, um, the question is, is that an, an enduring solution to the problem? Because for the Taliban, for the Islamic courts, or for that matter, for ISIS, the Islamic State, um, it doesn't seem to be a durable solution in part because it then attracts international attention, pressure, sanctions, war, none of which is the sort of thing that these businessmen would be interested in seeing. Well, there are a couple of reasons why it's not a solution. I mean, the first is that, you know, after the business community buy into this solution, which they think, okay, I'm paying less, I'm getting better security, this is a win-win-win, they actually eventually realize that they've bought a lemon. Uh, because once they have created a monopoly on force and there's no longer a competitive security environment, because that's really what a civil war is, it's a competitive security environment, and you're buying into protection rackets that are competing against each other. Once the Islamists win that game, then they've monopolized it, and just the same way that once you've driven out the mom-and-pop shop, that big-box chain can raise its prices on you, well, so can the Islamists. So once they've pushed out their competitors, they can raise taxes or tax or govern or regulate in ways that the business community don't like, and they no longer have an exit option. And so it's not uncommon for the business community to be irritated with the Islamists by the time they've uh, been thrust from power. I can tell you that uh, in the case of Iraq, um, my colleagues who have been tracking smuggling networks on the ground will attest that even though the smuggling networks were very excited to buy into Daesh and their early rise to power, they are really, really annoyed with them now because once they were in power, they taxed the hell out of everybody. And so that's one type of failure. The other failure is that, you know, frankly, the international community isn't interested in this type of state formation. And so, you know, number one, because it's bloody. Number two, because these aren't polities that we accept in, the, in our international system. You know, in the days of, of Ivan the Terrible and Catherine the Great, you know, going through long and, and brutal versions of, of bloody state formation are over. You know, our, our stomach... For that kind of state formation, uh, we just don't, we can't tolerate it. Uh, and so, when you have groups like this come to power, and then 
uh, create proto-states that the international community can't or won't accept. It results in their overthrow and the creation of new insurgencies. And sometimes that has been, you know, because of the failure of the international community to really understand what's happening on the ground. Like in the case of the Islamic Courts Union, you know, that was a very indigenous, domestic resolution to what had been, you know, 15 years of nonstop tribal warfare. The number of transnational groups active in Somalia uh, by the time the Islamic Courts Union was overthrown was, it was you know, maybe a small handful of individuals may have been in the country. But having done that, having overthrown the Islamic Courts Union, the international community actually gave birth to an al-Qaeda-affiliated jihadist insurgency in al-Shabaab. And so there are times when our our unwillingness to deal with these sorts of polities has actually created the very crises that we're trying to avoid. All right, well, thanks. We've been speaking with Aisha Ahmed from the University of Toronto, author of a new book, Jihad and Company, Black Markets and Islamist Power. Uh, Aisha, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Mark.